0: Looking for justice in all the wrong places. That's uh, based on looking for love in all the wrong places. When which is a song that I've never actually heard the original version of. But when I was young, uh, my parents had this uh, like back when they had video cassettes of uh, Saturday, Night, Saturday Night Live uh, commercials, fake commercials. And there was one where um, where Eddie Murphy plays Buckwheat uh, Buckwheat from the, the the Little Rascals, and he he does a play on that, which I thought was really funny. Um, I should probably listen to the actual song, though, before I bring it up here. Um, and, and, the, and the reason, of course, is, is, is yeah, yeah, we, we've got an election coming up. It's happening on Tuesday. It's, uh, it's pressing. It's right on our minds. Uh, for some of you, it's been all you've been thinking about uh, for the last several months. Uh, for some of us, it's just kind of off on the—it's it's sort of outside the radar, but we're aware that it's happening, and we know that it, it's important. We know that a big change is going to take place one way or the other. Um, And and we're kind of wondering a lot of the time what it is that we're supposed to be doing with the political process. Uh, If if you're not aware, I mean, we're actually living in one of the more frightening times. I mean, not the most frightening time in our republic's history, but it is a frightening time. If you look at the statistics, they're they're staggering about the way that people interact with or think about uh, their government these days. Um, I just have a, a couple of, of examples. We, we've been taking data since the 1970s where, we, where Gallup has been asking Americans what they think about um, government and, and, and their faith, how much they trust or have confidence in their political institutions. So, so look at this. Um, in, 19, in the 1970s, uh, people in the United States were asked, how much confidence do you have in the presidency? Not the president, not this one, but the presidency. And, and people said 52% either said that they had quite a lot or a great deal of confidence in the presidency. This year, that number um, had, had dropped to 36%. 36% of the people, not, not Obama or Bush um, or, or, or uh, Clinton or Trump, but just the idea of the president. Only 36% of the people in this country have quite a lot or a great deal of confidence in the, president, in the presidency. The Supreme Court, we see a similar trend. In the 1970s, it was 49% of the people believed that the Supreme Court was something they had confidence in. Now that number has dropped to 36%. But the worst news is for members of Congress, who've gone from 42% to 9%. (laughs) I'm not sure what to make of that, but uh, if, if you're looking for a career path, Congress probably isn't a good one. So... Yeah, You will be despised by, by 91% of the populace. That's a staggering shift. Staggering. Um, that's how little faith people have in our, in our governmental institutions these days. Uh, but it's not just governmental institutions. It's also, you know, traditionally in the United States, uh, there's been like a watchdog over government institutions. For those who, um, are supposed to promote justice, that's the government. I mean, if you look at the preamble of the Constitution, uh, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna establish justice as one of the things the Constitution is designed to do. And the people in charge of that are the government. Um, and, but then there's a watchdog group, a group that looks after the government to make sure the government's doing its job. And that's the journalists and the media and news organizations. But we've also seen a dramatic collapse um, in in faith in those watchdog groups. If you look in the 1970s, 51% of people had confidence that what they read in the newspapers was holding the government to account, that they were getting the truth, that they were learning what they needed to know to make informed decisions. That's dropped to 20% today when we started taking data on uh, TV news, a little later than the 1970s, but, um, but 46% of the people in the United States had confidence that uh, their newscasters were delivering the goods. And that's dropped to 21%. Now, this isn't a perfect measure, but I suggest to you that it probably indicates that people in our country are less and less convinced now than ever that the government is able to do What it's meant to do, and that is to establish justice, to promote the common good, to increase the welfare of our people. Fewer and fewer people believe that it can do it anymore. And here we are, we're about to make a big choice um, on Tuesday to bring in a new government. And, and when we think about it, we think about what uh, the government we're looking for right now, some of the issues that have gone on in, in our election this year. I mean, justice for the American workers, right? Um, there's been a lot of talk uh, about, uh, you know, the little guy getting his fair shake and, and the, the sense that, that he's not getting it. And, and we need somebody who's going to promote that. Or... Um, Justice for religious and ethnic minorities. That there are people in this country who have a, a, a faith that's not popular. Um, and there are people who have a, an ethnic background that's not popular. And they need to be protected. And there needs to be justice for them. Uh, Health care uh, for, for the, the lower class and the middle class. These are big issues that people need to know that they're taken care of and they're protected. These are some of the big issues that we're talking about right now, and and it seems like fewer and fewer people believe that the government can really bring justice to these things. In a democracy like ours, we assume that we can create a more just society. By what? Creating political coalitions, winning elections, ordering society according to our notions of what's right. Is this where God asks us to look for justice? Is this really the way that God says that Christians and people are to seek justice? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But what if it's not? What if what if the way that we're supposed to promote and seek justice, what if God's way is a little bit different? What if it could maybe incorporate the the American way, if you will, but maybe it's different. Maybe he has a different paradigm for how Christians are to achieve justice in the world. Um, in this text, Paul's actually going to be dealing with an issue of justice in the ancient world. He is going to be dealing with a very pressing issue, one that's, that's fraught in, in American history. He's going to be looking at slavery. And when he's doing it, Paul's doing it from a Jewish perspective. And so that's, it, it, what you see might not look like him dealing with an issue of justice, but I assure you he is. And, and I, I, can, I can say that because I know that... Um, that uh, there's a major difference between slavery in the world that Paul lives in, the Greco-Roman world, and the way that slavery is dealt with in the Old Testament. Paul's a Jew, and he's formed by the Jewish scriptures, by uh, the, the law and the prophets. And so he's been formed that way. He thinks that way about slavery. And slavery is very different in those two worlds. Um, if you think about slavery in, in the Old Testament, slavery is something that, that was instituted in order to address someone's needs. Right? Because if you're an Israelite and you, you enter into the land, you, you come to a place where God has given you a, a an inheritance and you have a plot of land that you work with your family and it stays with your family. But occasionally what would happen is people would have a bad season or or three bad seasons or five bad seasons or ten and they couldn't make you know they couldn't make their way. And so what they would do is they would find somebody who was a stronger, more established farmer, and they would literally sell themselves into slavery and say, I will be I will work for you if you will provide for my family. So it was a way to address an economic injustice. And interestingly, because of that, because of that, in Israelite slavery, in Old Testament slavery, it ended every six years. So if you entered into slavery, you were set free after six years in a little, what they call a jubilee. Uh, If you were a slave and you were on someone's land and they took really good care of you and your family, you could even say, you know what, this is better than me being responsible for my own plot of land and I'd like to stay here. And that was okay. Uh, in, in the Israelite world, if you were a woman who had a very, especially, um, endangered status because of, you know, issues of power, you were protected in Israelite slavery. If, if, if a woman was put into slavery, sold herself or was sold into slavery, it, she had to be betrothed or engaged to the owner or the owner's son so that she would be protected, so that she wouldn't be vulnerable. The, the Old Testament law forbids savage beatings. It forbids um, killing of slaves. It's very it, it tries to protect people who are in this, this disadvantaged position. Well, that's not the case in the Greco-Roman world. In the world that Paul's living in, in the world of, of Ephesus, where we're going to be, that's not the way things were. Now, there were some situations that were good like that, but there were a lot that weren't. For example, unlike Israelite slavery, where six years in, and out, you're done. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was for life. And it was for your kids, too. In the Greco Roman world, um, masters could kill a slave with no legal uh, repercussions. That, that changed later on in the empire, but at the time of Paul's writing, that was the case. If females were put into, into slavery, in fact, most of the prostitutes in the ancient world were female slaves. There was no protection for them, there was no, no way to, to keep them safe in the ancient world. Slavery in uh, the Greco Roman world, unlike um, the world of, of the Old Testament, encompassed a third of the people in the world. So in in Paul's world, literally 33% of the people you met were slaves or enslaved for life. Some slaves were treated really well. Some were treated more or less like animals. And so if you're Paul... And that's the world you see. And you've been formed by the Jewish scriptures. You've been formed by the laws in Exodus 21 and 22. You've been formed by the laws in Deuteronomy 17. You've been formed by some of the laws in Leviticus. That's how you think about slavery. I I submit to you that Greco-Roman slavery, and this is in your note sheets, was deeply offensive to those formed by the theological vision of the Old Testament. It was deeply offensive. It was not something Paul was comfortable with. In all likelihood, he deplored it. So here's this issue of justice. Justice for slaves and free. Masters and slaves. How does Paul deal with it? It might surprise us, but let's look at the text together. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, with sincere devotion to Christ. Don't work to make yourself look good and try to flatter people, but act like slaves of Christ, of Jesus, carrying out God's will from the heart. Serve your master as enthusiastically as though you were serving the master and not human beings. You know that the master will reward every person who does what is right, whether that person is slave or free. And you masters treat your slaves in exactly the same way. Stop threatening them because you know that both you and your slaves have the one true master in heaven. He doesn't distinguish between people on the basis of their status. Now, if you're like me, you you hear that and 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 you're not immediately thinking, oh, Paul's Paul's setting slaves free. He's fixing the problem. Emancipation proclamation. Paul, Abraham, Lincoln. No. Instead, if it sounds like anything, it sounds like he's perpetuating something that we see as deeply, deeply problematic. And I, I submit to you, he did too. So, what's really going on? How is Paul dealing with justice? How is he actually making a movement towards justice in the midst of a culture that is really, really problematic for him? What is he doing? Well, the first thing he does, and let's be honest about it, let's just lay it out. Paul commands, this is in your note sheets, Paul commands slaves and workers to act like the boss is the boss. Paul commands slaves and workers to act like the boss is the boss. That's really hard. For those of you who have jobs, you know this is no fun. This, this is for those of you who have one boss, you know how hard it is. I have like, like six bosses. I have the elder board, and they are stern, cruel, unyielding men. Uh, they... They're constantly twisting my arm, beating me down, and it's—it's it's so. Di- I'm just joking. They're incredible. They're, we have such loving people here. But, but I can imagine for those of you who don't have our elder board in oversight over you, I imagine what it must be like when you're encaged and your boss is putting his thumb on you, and he's—he's he's breaking you down, and you're wondering how am I supposed to live? And Paul says, "Oh, no worries. Just pretend like he's Jesus." That's what you do. And he really does. I mean, just look at, look at the text here. Um, masters and the master. You know, in Greek, uh, if you're looking at the New King James, and I've obviously, um, translated the text uh, to be a little more contemporary here, but if you're looking at the New King James, it'll say things like, obey your human masters, right? And then when it gets to where the master, it's the Lord. Well, that's just, that's just English. In, in Greek, it's the same world. It's the same word. It's kurios. So when, if you're listening in Greek, you're hearing this. You're hearing, obey your masters, and then, but don't forget the master. In fact, treat your master as like he's the master. That's what it sounds like to them. And then notice that it says, uh, uh, with, uh, with fear and trembling. Notice that next thing, that with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is not how you deal with, with human beings in, in Paul's world. You don't go to your human, human friends and deal with them in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is reserved for who? For God. And yet Paul's saying, when you're, when you're dealing with your human master, you, you act like he's... God to you. you. You approach him in the same way that you would approach the Lord. And when you're doing it, don't, don't do it to make yourself look good and to flatter people, right? Uh, in the, the, the Greek, there is some interesting words like eye service, um, man pleasing. You know, that, that's, that's, how, that's how we operate when we're you know, normally in, in, in the office, right? When, when you're in the office and you're trying to, to do stuff, you're not actually doing it because you want to do a great job. You're, you're doing it because you want other people to see that you're doing a great job. Because you know that if they see you doing a great job, you're going to go right up the, the promotion ladder. That's the way it works, right? You want to be you know, known as a great worker, as somebody who's competent. As... Don't, don't do that. No, no, no. Just, who cares about promotions? Who cares about more money? Who cares about any of that stuff, right? Which is, of course, how we act when we're actually doing something for the Lord, right? When The Lord says... You don't, don't expect anything in the world. Do it for me. Which is no fun. But it's what he asks us to do. And so Paul says, when you're, when you're at your job, you know, act like this. And when I say job, I mean, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery wasn't just miners and galley slaves. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, you could be a slave. Most doctors were slaves. Uh, most teachers were slaves. Um, most... Um, most uh, child care workers were slaves. Most accountants were slaves. If you're hearing middle class jobs, if you're hearing my job, your job was a slave job in the ancient world. It's not as though he's just talking about people who are down in the bowels of the you know mucking bilge or whatever it is that sailors do. Uh, it's not that. It's, it's, it's everything. It crosses the socioeconomic spectrum. And so these people who have jobs just like ours, who have bosses just like ours, are being told... Don't treat him like the man. Treat him like the man. Because you you want your, your, your work to be like you're a slave of Christ. Like you're carrying out God's will from the heart. So you're enthusiastic. You're bubbling and joyful. Despite the fact that what you're doing is no good. And the person you're doing it for isn't that great either. And enthusiastic. I mean, that would be a lot easier for us, right? It would be really easy if Jesus was our boss and not our boss. Because, you know, when you're following Jesus, it's a little bit easier to be open-hearted. It's a little bit easier to be grateful, to be enthusiastic, because Jesus has done stuff for you already. He's led the way. He showed you what real leadership looks like. He's inspired you and redeemed you and saved you and protected you and guarded you. He's already done all that for you. And so when he says, follow me, you're like, right on. Your boss at work, not so much. Your boss at work is like, I mean, this is what I do. Ladies out front in the office, you know, they're fielding phone calls. They're helping people as they come in. What I do is I, I sit in my chair, um, click on the internet, you know, check on some news sites, put my feet up. I like to take a little nap in there. And then I, if I hear the phone call, I come out, I run, I yell at them. I just terrorize them a little bit like, get this done. We have stuff that needs to be taken care of. And they cry and they weep and I'm like, good. And then I run back in, take another nap. I mean, just a a usual day at the office, right? But maybe it sounds a little bit like some of your days at the office. And you wish, you wish that your boss wasn't the boss, but was the boss. There's a little hope here. You see, because unlike your boss who uh, passes you over for promotion... Misses all the stuff that you do. That brown noser who does it right, that person gets lifted up through the ranks, and you're still slaving away, and you're looking and wishing that were you. And that boss doesn't give you anything. This boss, Paul says, will reward you. This boss will remember you in eternity. This boss won't forget you. He's going to see everything you've done, even the stuff you do at work, even the stapling, and the computering, and the accounting, and the mining, all of it. He's going to see it all, and he's going to get you yours but wait. That's great. But if, Tom, Tom, if Paul really hates slavery, if he's really kind of offended by it, then doesn't this seem like it has no help for the people who are enslaved? Doesn't this seem like Paul's just kind of like, well, this is the situation, deal with it. Doesn't it feel like he's perpetuating a system that's corrupt and unjust? And is there any way that this right here can help us think about how we seek justice here, in this place, and in this culture? You guys know this guy? Really famous. His name's, uh, I, I had to look it up because to pron- pronounce it because he's not famous at all. His name's Louis Brandeis. Yeah, he was a uh, Supreme Court justice of all things here uh, in the United States of America in like the early uh, 1900s, Louis Brandeis. He, um, he was kind of the one progressive. He was the justice-seeking guy on the court. At the time, the court was very, what we would think of in our terms as very conservative. And he was uh, very, what we would think of in our terms as progressive or liberal. And so he, he was on the, on, the, on the court and he was constantly like railing against the other justices. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And they just ignored him, and they, they did their thing. But, but Brandeis had the last word. Because he would write all these dissenting opinions in the court, time after time after time. And there's one particular case that has enshrined him in history. Um, it's, it's the case of, of New State Ice Company uh, versus Liebeman. New State Ice Company versus Liebeman uh, In Oklahoma, there was an ice company... And this ice company was a hawk for, uh, for, for good ice production. And they just couldn't, couldn't bear the thought that anyone would be, would be producing ice without a license or a permit. And there was one man who dared to buck the system, who shook his fists at the ice monopoly held by New State Ice Company. He said, I will produce ice by myself. So they sued him. Uh, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, in fact, because they had already, the New State Ice Company, their uh, board of directors had hired a lobbyist in Washington, or and not in, in Washington, in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State had passed a law that says you are not allowed to produce ice without a permit. And this guy Lieberman is in violation of it, and so they took it all the way to the Supreme Court, saying he must stop, he must cease and desist, desist his ice production because it's in violation of the law. And the court said, no, he doesn't. What, really? Is it that big a deal? He's just making ice, guys. And so they, they struck this down. They said, Lieberman, you make as much ice as you as you please, go nuts. Louis Brandeis was having none of it. He said, you know what? We shouldn't be interfering. We shouldn't interfere with, with Oklahoma as Oklahoma wants to— if, they, if Oklahoma wants to make an ICE regulation process, let them. Why not? What's the big deal? He did this because he said Oklahoma in every state is a laboratory of democracy. Uh, Lewis was a, was a big fan of the sciences he loved science and he, he could imagine this incredible future where science was going to change everything and he understood that scientists when they got to work they put on their, 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 their lab coats and they, they got to work with their sciencing and they used their science over here and their science over here and they put it together to create even better science and he knew that, that was going to do something amazing for the world and he thought why isn't our government the same way? Why can't we get together and, and try to figure out the best way to add this and that to create this thing with our goggles on and the smoke and, and coming up in our laboratory? He said, Oklahoma's just doing that. Oklahoma, they're ice. Who cares? But if they, if they want to try it, let them, let them in their laboratory of democracy try out a new way of regulating ice and see if it works. If it works, then then maybe Nebraska will will join in and maybe South Dakota and, and then maybe Texas and then maybe Massachusetts and maybe all the states will agree that this is the way to do it because they've seen this laboratory of democracy, they've seen the success that Oklahoma has. The idea is to give each state the freedom to try out new ways of ordering life and see what sticks. Well, I suggest to you, and, and this is the last thing on your, on your uh, handout, that Paul understands that the local church is God's laboratory of justice. God's laboratory of justice. You see, the church is the place that tries out new ways of addressing issues in light of the king being the king and in light of the redemption of the cross and in light of all people becoming brothers and sisters in his blood. In light of that, the church is the place that gets to work it out differently, to try it differently, to do incredible new things and see how they work in public, in front of the world so the world can look at it and see those crazy Christians. What are they up to now? As though Christians are a bunch of scientists with their lab coats on like justice and Jesus, putting it together and and creating new ways of doing life. Uh, Look look at this text again. Look at at our text. Look at our text. Notice the first thing. Slaves. That might not seem weird to us, but remember, slaves are illiterate in the ancient world. So if Paul writes, you know, most slaves are illiterate. Most people are illiterate. If, If Paul writes this, he's expecting slaves to hear it. And he's addressing them directly. He's assuming that in this place, slaves get addressed. That never happens in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when you give advice, you never give advice to slaves. You give advice to masters. Masters, this is how you rule your slave, to make that slave effective and useful. Paul bucks that trend because he treats slaves like they're people. He treats slaves like they have a voice. He charges them with a task. Notice also um, when we started this whole section in, in, in chapter five, verse twenty-one. This entire section that we've been in in Ephesians is based on mutual submission. It starts out with you know wives and husbands, and we talked about that how they submit to each other. Um, it, we, we we skipped a part. We actually talked about it at Father's Day this year. But 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 fathers and sons, or children and parents, are even called to submit to each other. And now Paul takes this same thing and he says slaves and masters submit to each other. If that doesn't sound weird to you, then you have a very strange notion of what slavery looks like. Notice their um, uh, masters uh, treat them the same way. You know, uh, treat them the same way. Uh, The 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 masters are are called to 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 do exactly what the slaves have done back to them. It's the golden rule, as it were. Can you imagine a master, someone treating their property? as though um, they're to love and, and protect it and, 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 and do, do good for it. I mean, this, this assumes, it assumes from the outset that slaves and masters in one place are already equal, right? Like, you know, God shows no partiality. God rewards you whether you're slave or free, both slaves and masters, you have the same one true master in heaven. I, I, I've just added one true, but the idea being there, there's one real Lord, and he's both of your lords. You're before him not masters and slaves, but brothers and sisters. In the church that Paul's talking to, these people who were from radically different social classes are already living in a radically different way, as brothers and sisters, as, as family And so Paul says, you know what, in here, we're going to keep doing that. Out there, this is what you do, so that people will see you. And then they're going to look in here, and they're going to see a different way of doing stuff. The local church is the laboratory of justice. It's the place where we're going to try something new, according to God's design, according to God's ordering, a way that that brings people together in a a way that they've never been together before in the world. The world will take notice. And, and, And what's going to happen if you do this, church? is what actually happened in the world. The story of abolition and and civil rights in in our country is an example of this. It's not December yet, but when we get to December, we're going to sing O Holy Night, my favorite hymn for Christmas. You remember that line? Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Written in 1846, 1846, during the abolitionist movement. People saw Paul's ordering of the church, and they recognized that that by coming, Christ had made all people equal, brothers and sisters in God's eyes, and they they tried to live that out, especially in, in our country, in northern churches. And as a result, the culture looked at what the churches were doing and said, that seems good. We should get on board with that. The civil rights movement is no different. We're African-American churches in the South began living differently with dignity and saying, hey, world, take notice. And interestingly, American Christians did take notice. And that's how civil, the civil rights happened here. Because we tried it in this place, the local church, God's laboratory of justice. Friends, I suggest that here at Coast Bible Church, we've done this. Um, I can think of so many different issues of justice that the world concern, is, concerns itself about that have been practiced here. You know, we, people right now, one of the big issues in this election is illegal immigration. It's so, so powerful. You know, we, we've got people in our church, build a wall. We've got people in our church like, let them in! And, 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 and you all live together in harmony, which is, which is fascinating. Maybe you just don't bring it up, which is great. Uh, <laughs> don't. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm going to walk out there and be like, Trump! Clinton! No, please don't. I... Uh, but I've seen what we've done when we've had people come to our church who maybe don't have documented status and how we've treated them. And so regardless of of what we think um, out there, uh, we know how we treat people in here, you know? I've seen over the time that I've been here how we deal with issues of justice for things like unwanted pregnancies, unexpected children, how it is that the church, uh, this church has has stepped in and said, well, we're going to be surrogate parents. Whatever the culture out there says we ought to do, we're going to practice a new way of life right here in this place, and we're going to see what happens when we treat each other the way Jesus expects us to treat each other. And then the world outside is going to take notice. The the same thing with adoption. You know, uh, right now there's a fascinating political fight about what to do with adoption. Uh, One side says that we should end it entirely, Uh, especially from third world countries. And there's another side that says, let's save those kids. And and who knows where you fall on that divide. But right here, we've seen people adopt and care for the fatherless. And we've made an example of that. I, I submit that we do it in just about every aspect of our lives already. And we are called to say to the world, look at us. Look at what the laboratory looks like when we're in our, in our suits figuring out what it looks like for to, to be Jesus uh, in this place and to deal with the real tough issues that we have to deal with and do it in light of his lordship and what that's going to look like for people and for life. Come see. I, I submit to you, it's always going to be a little different than what they do out there. Raising kids. In the ancient world, uh, it was like you just... Actually, slaves and children were about on equal status in the ancient world, which might not be a bad idea, and maybe we should bring that back. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Nate. You're great. Uh, yeah. So, so, so fathers would just, like, beat their kids. That was like the, the way that it was done in, in the ancient world. And the Christians came along and were like, you know, we should try loving them. Fascinating what happens. Interesting, the culture has seen what we've done with our children, and so the culture now uh, suggests that we should just let our kids do whatever we want, they want, um, because, uh, and just do, be free, and, and we're just going to infirm whatever their desires are, and we're never going to put any limits because we want to love them. And right here, we, we actually are kind of in the middle. We, we have a, we're going to be firm about what's right and wrong, but yeah, we're going to love. And so we're a laboratory of child raising, done in the light of Jesus Christ for the world to see. probably the biggest call for the church right now if we're being honest is to be a laboratory of justice to show the world what it looks like to welcome and yet not affirm our LGBTQI friends. Um, The world says we should affirm everything. Um, There's a a class of people who want to reject all um, who don't fit a certain mold and and we at the church are called in in this moment in this task to say we're going to welcome We're going to love, but we're also going to um, recognize God's call on our sexual lives. It's an incredibly challenging task that the church has in this day and age. But we're God's laboratory of justice. And when we do it, the world will take notice of us. And the world will, will stop and pause and say, wait, this is mind boggling. And then the church will look at our Lord. The boss. And say, I wish he were my boss too. I'm not saying don't vote, by the way. Get out there on Tuesday. Exercise your democratic rights by all means. But don't expect justice in the world. Instead, seek justice in the church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll make Coast Bible Church continue our legacy of being a laboratory for your justice in the world. I pray that we'll be a shining light, a place where people look and and are just shocked at how we reorder um, life and, and how we treat issues differently because we follow you, because you're our boss, with a capital B. God, I pray that we won't be uh, discouraged by what we see in the world. We won't be uh, beat down or, 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 or concerned by what happens in, in, in politics in this nation or in, in, in the, on the globe. But instead, we'll, we'll focus on our politics here. That will be your laboratory for justice. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the way he shows us how to love the way he shows us how to mutually submit and how he shows us what justice really looks like at the cross. In his name we pray, amen.